127, God's word, his infallible word. A song of ascents of Solomon. Unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. It is in vain that you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. He shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. This is God's word, brothers and sisters in Christ. The church loves children. The church loves children. If you get nothing else from this morning's sermon, know that the church loves children. The church has always loved children all throughout its history. Children are part of the design of God instituting the family in the garden. Uh, The church's love for children, uh, the most basic love for, uh, for, for our children is what made Pharaoh's order in Exodus chapter 1 regarding the slaughter of the children such a tragedy. Uh, and the raising of children is one of the main and one of the basic unmentioned themes that carries us literally throughout the entire Bible from Genesis 1 to Revelation 22. The, the church of the Lord Jesus Christ from the Garden of Eden, even nowadays, the church loves children. Very often in the Old Testament, you'll see this, uh, this phrase, uh, the people of Israel, the people of Israel do so and so, the people of Israel uh, do such and such. Well, the Hebrew literally reads the children of Israel in many of those instances. And every single time in the Bible where any human being is mentioned, there's an assumption in that passage that life is sacred and that homage is therefore paid to the generations that come before them, that they owe their existence to them in some form or fashion, reaching all the way back to Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden. And so our love for Our children is what we observe to this very day, specifically seen in the baptism of this covenant child. In short, raising children, giving them the sign of the covenant, raising them to be responsible covenant members is the direct mechanism by which the covenant of grace has unfolded all throughout history, leading us to Christ, who is the very arbiter of the covenant. He is the very mediator of the covenant of grace. And having children, raising them in the fear and admonition of the Lord, the nurture and admonition of the Lord, is still that thing that brings us to this very point, unfolding that same covenant of grace to us this very day. Our passage, Psalm 127, is what's known as a wisdom psalm. Uh, there's many ways in which the psalms are classified. This one is particularly uh, classified as a wisdom psalm. And it's mainly about the futility of man's ability to care for himself and to bring to himself any semblance of security or provision on the one hand. Uh, This is verses 1 and 2. And then on the other hand, it it jumps almost haphazardly to the blessedness of children. Uh, Now, us in the 21st century, we we don't see the connection uh, between this. We're we're not accustomed uh, to seeing the connection between verses, what is it, 1 and 2, 
and then three through five, uh, mainly because we're so removed from the time period as, as well as the ethical period of this passage. So it, it, seems, it might seem as though these don't have anything to do with, with one another, but we're going to be taking a look at this psalm, Psalm 127, and see that these two themes, uh, the inability of man to provide any security of himself, and having children, these themes are not as separate as we might think. They're, they're not mutually exclusive uh, ideas that are going on here. This is what we're going to be looking at uh, this morning. We'll be considering this in the context of the baptism that we've just observed, that we just witnessed. And so our theme for this morning is found written in your bulletin, God uses our children to maintain his watchfulness and his blessing over his people. God uses our children to maintain his watchfulness and his blessing over his people. And we're going to be just looking at these two points this morning, the Lord's constancy in blessing and the Lord's legacy in blessing. And starting in verse 1, we see the, uh, the, the constancy of the Lord's blessing in verse 1, where twice we see this word, unless. Verse 1, unless the Lord builds the house, those who build it labor in vain. Unless the Lord watches over the city, the watchman stays awake in vain. In other words, There's a note going on here of certain and dismal oblivion of what's going to happen if the Lord is not involved in whatever needs to be done. The building of the house, the watching over the city, which is where the house is located, as you can gather. If the Lord isn't involved in any of this, it's a thing of vanity, now, think of who this psalm is attributed to. Take a look at, uh, at uh, who this psalm is attributed to. Solomon. Uh, this is the only one of the Song of Ascents that is attributed to Solomon. There's, of course, different uh, theories as to why it's called Song of Ascents. Ascents um, is that you're going up. Is, is this referring to uh, the 15 uh, steps that you take in the temple, perhaps? Is this referring to Israel coming back from Babylon, Babylonian captivity, perhaps? Is this referring to some feast in which you journey to Jerusalem, and you, in Jerusalem you go up? That phrase, go up to Jerusalem, it's speaking of a geography thing, so a Song of Ascents as you go. I don't know. I'm I'm, uh, mostly privy to the third one. Uh, But regardless, it's attributed to Solomon. What's he known for? He's known for building the house of the Lord. He's known for building the temple. He's known for being king in Jerusalem, the, the, the city where the temple resides. The house of the Lord resides in Jerusalem. Unless the temple is built by the Lord, in other words, unless the Lord is the primary person of interest, And unless the Lord founds the city in which the temple is located, it is all a thing of vanity. It's all a thing of vanity. It's purposeless. It's meaningless. The word vanity in the original language means a breath. It it, it goes away just as, uh, almost as as a breath goes away in the cold air. It just goes, it's gone. If the Lord is not involved in this, it is a thing of purposelessness, as it is a thing of meaninglessness. If the temple exists without the Lord as the VIP, as the very person of, 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 of interest, the very important person, unless the Lord is the founder of the city in which the temple is in, it's all a thing of vanity. It's a thing of vanity without the Lord's watchfulness or the Lord's presence. Similarly in verse 2, it's vain when you rise up early and go late to rest, eating the bread of anxious toil, for he gives to his beloved sleep. Now, what's this referring to? 
uh, it's vain, take a look at it, uh, to, to, to rise up early and go late to rest. This is referring to a farmer. This is referring to a farmer who rise up early and they, they, they go to their labors. And as you know, the, that old adage, what is it, early uh, to bed, early to rise, what's going on here in verse 2 is that the farmer is going to bed really late. You know, here's a guy going to sleep at 2 o'clock in the morning. He's got to get up at 4 o'clock in the morning uh, to, I don't know, do farming stuff. I, didn't, I haven't uh, been raised on a farm or anything like that, but I, I do know that you milk the cows at about 4 a.m., right? <laughs> but here's the, 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 the picture of a guy going really, really late to bed, has to rise up uh, early in the morning. And the reason why he's doing this is very similar to the basic theme in the book of Ecclesiastes. Everything is vain under the sun. Everything is vain under the sun. That is to say, without God and without his revelation, everything loses its meaning. Everything loses its purpose. So what is, what's going on here? The farmer, he, he tries in vain uh, to, to find some purpose in his labors without God. And what he ends up doing is more and more toilsome labor. He's, he, he's, he's, he's without rest, of course. He goes to bed really late. He rises early in the morning. He's working his hands to the bone because he only works for himself. He only works for his own designated purpose. But he's not God. And being not God and giving himself his own self-designated purpose, what does that do? He, he calls upon himself a life where he can never stop working. Why? Because his purpose is found in his work. That is his only and one exclusive purpose, and he better not ever stop at that work, because if he ever stops at that work, he stops working towards his very purpose that is self-designated outside of God And he is not great enough ever to fulfill his own purpose. Really, a self-designated life is the one that is ultimately resigned to purposelessness, no rest, toilsome labor all the days of your life. And now we can see what all this is in, in the reverse, can't we? It's vain if the Lord isn't present in his house. It's vain if the Lord isn't watching over the city. It's vain... Uh, to go about your daily labors in the self-sustained and the self-sufficient life. It's telling us this because it wants us to see this in the reverse, uh, which is to say that admitting one's own inabilities, admitting the futility of my own ability to to watch myself, and admitting these things, to to admit one's own weakness, to to, to watch yourself, to provide for yourself, to, 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 to give security to yourself, And to bring all these under the ownership of the Lord is not a thing of vanity. It's to find one's purpose in God, who is his fruition and his reward. Uh, Which is to say, to admit verses 1 and 2, to admit that uh, sociologically, and to admit that personally, is to admit the sovereignty and provision of the Lord. That it's the Lord who builds the house. It's the Lord who watches over the city. In other words, it's the Lord who gives increase to any and every area of human existence. To deny this is to shoulder the burden of sovereignty and provision yourself. This is why he gives to his beloved sleep at the end of uh, verse 2. Take a look at that. He, He gives to his beloved sleep. In other words, what we have in Christ is a sure and resolute confidence that God will do as he says, And when we admit this, when we actually believe this, when we believe in the Lord's provision, what does this do? We admit 
in the provision of an omnipotent God, that it is actually God who will do what he says that he'll do. This gives us a sense of confidence in his ability to maintain us as a people, that God will build his house. Uh, He will watch over the city in our terms and in the fullness of time after Christ comes. He will give increase to his church universal. This is why I pray the way that I do. Lord, give us good pastors. Lord, give us a good hunger and a thirst for your word. I petition the Lord who watches over the house. I petition the Lord who uh, watches over the city and who builds the house. That it's the Lord who will give increase to his church universal. He will even give increase to this church in particular, Falls Church, our own. He will give blessings, even if it's not necessarily to be found in this age, to the one who relies upon the Lord Jesus and his finished work. Now, this doesn't, doesn't mean that we're, we're going to be busting at the seams with people. It doesn't mean that the constancy of the Lord's blessings are going to be tangible in this age. I'm not saying that, okay, now go buy lottery tickets. Well, number one, because it's sinful, and number two, it's dumb, and number three, the Lord has never promised that you're going to get billions of dollars in the lottery or anything like that. It, it, even though the, the, the blessings may not come to us in, in this age tangibly in, in, in that uh, form and fashion, we can have confidence to look to him to do exactly as he's promised, that he'll certainly be there to deliver on these promises. And we know this because the Lord works through means. The Lord works through means. He works through particular means to accomplish his will. And, and by that, I mean that there's two basic ways Two basic means by which the Lord accomplishes his will. Uh, Either through direct intervention, uh, number one, or number two, through secondary causes. Uh, which is to say that the, the Lord either works, again, through, through directly, through, through miracles. You think of the miracles of Jesus healing people. Uh, you think of the, the, the miracles of walking on water, resurrecting Lazarus, and things like that. You think of the plagues of Egypt and, and whatnot. That's the, uh, an example. Those are examples in which the Lord works directly through direct intervention. Uh, the second way in which the Lord uh, works and accomplishes uh, his, uh, his will uh, is through the norms of the created order the norms of created order, through the, the, the natural uh, mechanisms of creation doing what it should be doing, uh, that is, through secondary causes, and therefore his will is accomplished. He works through secondary causes uh, like this. And we can apply that to this, uh, this passage. In other words, take a look at verses 2 and 3, really verses 1, 2, and 3. Uh, the means by which the Lord builds the house... Uh, the means by which the Lord watches over the city, the means by which the Lord gives increase to his people, is children. Children are the natural means by which the constancy of the Lord's blessings is to be outflowed and poured down, right, brought to us. And this is the connection uh, between verses 1 and 2 and the, the rest of the psalm. This is the connection of the next few verses. The recipients of the Lord's constancy in blessing is bequeathed to the next of kin. Or to put it this way, the Christ-centered family is the natural way, is the natural mechanism by which the Lord's blessings flow in constancy from Adam and Eve in the Garden of Eden all the way down to 2022 in Falls Church right now in this very building. This is what links the entire psalm together, as well as, of course, the next psalm, if you read it on, on your own time. Uh, it has very similar themes in Psalm 128. And so 
one of the main features of the constancy of the Lord building his house, watching over the city, and even conducting the necessary task for humanity's own good is the continuity of, of humanity's line. And this leads us to our second point, the Lord's legacy in blessing. Look at verse 3 with me. Behold, children are a heritage from the Lord, the fruit of the womb a reward. This is the natural way in which God builds the house. This is the natural way in which God watches over the city. He he works by means of the next generation, the following generation. And, And think with me for a moment how distinct of a message that is from our culture. Now, besides the church, I challenge you Uh, to come up with another institution in America that says that children are a heritage. Literally in the original language, the word heritage, uh, inheritance. Um, The same word that's used, I I preached in the life of Abraham very frequently. I came across this uh, word in the Hebrew, a necessary possession. Something necessary that you need to bring with you in order to survive an inheritance like that, or that, what, what other institution in America exists that, that will even say that children are a heritage from the Lord, or quite literally, again, in the original language, a heritage of the Lord, indicating that our children actually belong to the Lord. What other institution in America will say that children are a reward? Uh, again, the word wages. What other institution in America will admit that children are a reward, an inheritance, an inheritance even from the Lord himself? Our society wants to tell us that children are just a nuisance, that they're just an inconvenience. Children are just going to, this is what you'll hear in society somehow, that children actually prevent us from being who we really are and who we want to be. Somehow we're taught to think that children are an annoyance, and that, we're, that, that, that children are supposed to be seen and not heard, because after all, uh, children cost a lot of money. Uh, they poop in their diapers. Uh, children are just, you know, kind of annoying. They don't sit uh, still in church. Uh, you have to quit your job for them. They're just an annoying. They, they, they cost a lot of money. They don't do what you... Children are just an annoying. Somehow we're, we're given that message. Um, and they're not improving you. And because they're not improving you tangibly, you don't see the results of the, ch- you know, the children don't, uh, don't give like, like hundreds of dollars. Thank you, Father, for, for dinner. Here's a hundred dollars or something. Because they're not improving you like that, they're impeding your progress as a person. But remember the farmer in verse 2. Remember the farmer in verse 2. He has his own self-designated object- objectives, and that only drives him into futility and endless toil. So that's not what the Bible teaches about children. It says that they're a heritage. It says that they are a reward. It says that they're given to us in maintenance of the Lord's constancy and blessing. And we'll look at the next two verses, actually, to put more feet on that very thing a little bit more. Take a look at verses 4 and 5. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. 
Now, how is it that the Lord's legacy and blessing is fleshed out? How how, how is it that the Lord delivers the constancy of his blessing? As we've seen, uh, by means of of children who are a blessing, they're a heritage, they're a reward. And here, the blessing of children are compared to arrows in the hand of a warrior. Now, even this, I'll admit to you, is quite distinct from how we normally think of children, isn't it? Uh, we, We typically, in other words... What we typically do with babies when they're born, what do we do? We dress them up all cute and stuff, and we take baby photos. You know, I did it with, with my kids. You did it with yours, so don't, don't throw stones and stuff like that. Uh, what else do we do? Well, we speak to them in high-pitched voices, don't we? Hey, little guy! You know, you know that, that's, that's what we do. We, we speak to them in high-pitched voices because they're cute, and that, that's all well and good and stuff like that. But keep in mind, as you're doing this, that the Bible in verse 4 compares them to arrows. Arrows don't wear pretty hair ties, okay? Uh, That's not what arrows do. We don't usually take Christmas photos with our ammunition, do we? If you do that, you need some serious help. You need some serious therapy. We don't dress arrows up all cute and stuff like that. Arrows are weapons. They're dangerous. They're weapons. Arrows kill stuff. That's what they're designed for. Arrows are there to kill stuff. Uh, arrows are, if you put it this way, they're the sniper rounds of the ancient Near East. They're the 308 Winchesters. They're the NATO rounds of the ancient Near East. They're weapons of war in this passage. They're not merely weapons of hunting in this passage. They're weapons of war in this passage. And the Bible says that the children of one's youth are like arrows in the hand of a warrior and that the man is blessed who's got a bunch of them. Now, this isn't a direct mandate, of course, to you know, have a ton of kids or that, that somehow you're not blessed or something like that if you don't have uh, kids or anything like, uh, like that. What, in other words, this isn't proscriptive, to put that, uh, that, that word out there. What this is is telling us to look at children a lot differently than our culture does. Look at children as blessings and to regard them as the natural means by which the Lord's constancy and legacy of blessing flows to humanity, particularly to his own people. So what does this mean? What does this mean? Firstly, it means that this is the manner in which the Lord's legacy of blessing is to be carried on from one generation to the next. This is the way in which the Lord builds his house. This is the way in which the Lord watches over his city. Uh, When one set of Christ-honoring parents transfer their love of Jesus to their children so that the children now love Jesus like the parents do. This is what it means, uh, firstly, that the manner in which the Lord's legacy of blessing is carried on is through our children. Secondly, It also means that the person who holds these arrows, who holds this ammunition, is supposed to know how to use them well. He's supposed to know how to store them. He's supposed to know how to treat them. He's he's supposed to, in, in, in the words of the passage, he's supposed to know how to sharpen them. He's supposed to know how to test them. He's supposed to be accurate with them. Uh, he's, uh, He's supposed to know how to use these weapons well. In the words of Paul, He's supposed to bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord, Ephesians 6. In other words, parents, you are supposed to know your Lord. You are supposed to love your Lord enough and live under him that your children are supposed to understand that and you are to direct your children to do likewise. 
The person who holds these arrows is supposed to know how to use them well. Thirdly, it also means that we are supposed to train our children for war. This is what this passage is pointing us to. We are supposed to train our children for war. That is, we are supposed to train them up for the task of waging war against the world, the flesh, and the devil. We're supposed to teach them, in other words, to destroy arguments and every lofty opinion that's raised up against God and the Lord Jesus and to take every thought captive to obey Jesus Christ. That's the significance of the baptism here. That's the significance of what we've just done here. We designate this little one in service of Christ the king. That's what happens here. It means now that this little one who is out in the narthex or down, downstairs or something, it means that this little one is now marked. It means that this little one is now designated. She now wears the colors of Christ's military. She's marching now under his banner. And, and don't be mistaken, all the unseen powers, all of the unseen authorities, they know this very well. Yes, we, we, we can't really see them per se. Uh, the Bible speaks of, uh, of them very plainly. Rest assured, the powers of darkness know very well of Lorraine, Virginia, Adi right now, including any baptized uh, covenant member. They know of you very well right now. She's marked. She's designated under the promises of God's covenant of grace. Uh, what does this also mean? It means that when you hear the crying of a covenant child in the pews, it's not merely a sound of crying that, uh, that you hear, that it's a battle cry from Jesus's warrior children. That's what that is. We're to train them up for war against the world, the flesh, and the devil himself. Like arrows in the hand of a warrior are the children of one's youth. Blessed is the man who fills his quiver with them. And lastly, look at the outcome of all this in verse 5. He, the warrior, shall not be put to shame when he speaks with his enemies in the gate. The constancy and the legacy of the Lord's blessing is found when the child is now trained up well enough now to join the father in the seat of deliberation. That's the goal of this. That's the outcome of this. This is the intended outcome of a covenant child. When they're viewed as a blessing, when they're viewed as a heritage, when they're, view, when they're viewed as a reward, as the natural means to the building up of the house and to the foundation and the security of the city, when you train up that child in the way that it should go, that they're fully now furnished and spiritually equipped to assume leadership where the parents leave off. This is part of the layout of the Christian family and what we're seeing in this baptism service is virtually the beginnings of that very thing taking place right now, uh, just moments ago. So what does that mean if you don't have children then? What does this mean if you don't have children, or, or perhaps your children are gone? It means that this task uh, is somehow still being completed in some form or fashion, even in you. In other words, you were those children you were those children who were being trained, even if you came to Christ at some later date. You were being trained. You were in the hands of some warrior, be it your parents or the Lord Jesus himself. And you are now currently being used as an expression of the Lord's constancy and the Lord's legacy in blessing his people. 
He's shot you out, in other words. You're, const- you're, you're currently being used in service to the Lord Jesus. Right now, you are currently being engaged in that battle. You are right now being used as an arrow in the warrior's hand. And that warrior's hand, that warrior's name is the Lord Jesus Christ, the King of Kings. And also, it means that you have a unique position to do everything that you can to, tr- to the training of our future soldiers in Christ so that whether you have children or not, it doesn't even really matter you can partner up with the blessing of God to the betterment of his people in Christ. We've seen this morning that God uses our children to maintain his watchfulness and his blessing over his people. We've seen that in the Lord's constancy in blessing and the Lord's legacy in blessing. I have a couple of applications as we close. Firstly, brothers and sisters, to be a functioning member of this church, it is incumbent upon you to love the children of this church. To be a functioning member of this church, you must love the children of this church. It is incumbent upon you to do this. Just as the parents have taken vows uh, to teach uh, the child uh, the principles of the Christian faith, to pray with her, to pray for her, do everything that they can to bring her up in the Lord, so too you have this charge to love her, to receive her as a member of the body of Christ. We were all charged to be committed to her, that as she joins our membership, we are to assist her parents, her and her parents, by our example, uh, through our prayers, through our encouragement. And this means that in order to function as a member of this church, you are not only to love her, she's in the back now, but also every single member, every single covenant child of this church. To not do this is to spurn the Lord's heritage. To not place your love upon this child and any other covenant child is to spurn the Lord's heritage, to despise his reward. And even in the sentiment of the passage, to not express love to our covenant children is to go into the battlefield unarmed. This is what the passage teaches. But we have this little one and all the other little ones in this church to be an inheritance from the Lord and to one day take over for us, right? We're not going to be here forever. Uh, so we train up our children the way that, we, that, that they should go. We ain't going to be around forever. We need someone to replace us, and it's going to be our children. We have this heritage that they're going to one day, we pray that they take over for us in our aged years to be a functioning member of this church. You must love the children of this church. And secondly, Uh, brothers and sisters, be reminded of your baptism. Be reminded of your baptism. When you were baptized into the name of the triune God, you were designated for service to the kingdom of God. This compels us then to live uh, as citizens of the kingdom. Uh, The Westminster Larger Catechism, uh, one of our uh, formularies, one of our standards by which we operate, knows this as improving our baptism improving our baptism. We improve our baptism when we grow in our love for Jesus who applied his promises to us and has engrafted us to himself. We improve our baptism in the moment of baptism. Just a moment ago, uh, when we we see the water of baptism falling down upon little Rainey's head, I said uh, one of the things that, that I'm known for, 
I douse. I don't give like little sprinkles. I just douse. It's all over my jacket and stuff like that, all over the floor and whatnot. I do that so all of y'all can see what's going on so that you can remember your baptism as well and what the Lord Jesus has cleansed you from. That he, he, he washes us, not, you know, sparsely, you know, like, give you a little bit right now, but if you're a good boy, if you're a good girl, you get some more later. No, the Bible says that he washes us richly in Christ. Titus chapter 3, one of my favorite passages. When we see the, the, the water coming down upon the head of a little one, we're shown by a visible sign the riches of God's mercy, the riches of God's kindness in the washing of regeneration, the renewal of the Holy Spirit. Your baptism, brother and sister in Christ, has made it incumbent upon you to now live the baptized life here and now. Be reminded of your baptism and live accordingly. Let's pray.